0: Culture of Death, part one. As a result of the social and sexual revolution and the changing attitude to sexuality and family, our age is facing a fertility crisis because we are producing fewer and fewer children, an ideal promoted on every side since children are increasingly seen as a drag on individual mobility, freedom, and independence. Abortion has greatly contributed to these declining birth rates. As an aspect of the deep hostility amongst cultural elites towards the Christian view of the family, a culture of death is growing up around us. Most politicians still steadfastly refuse to address the issue of abortion in Canada, whilst the courts continue to imprison people engaging in peaceful Christian witness to protect life near many abortion clinics. Meanwhile, leading medical intellectuals, writing in the Journal of Medical Ethics, are calling for the legitimization of afterbirth abortion, in other words, infanticide, for the same reasons someone would have an abortion now in Canada, declaring that the newborn infant is only a potential person without a moral right to life. The British Medical Association has advised doctors that there may be grounds for abortion solely on the basis of the sex of the fetus. A recent investigative journalistic operation found that sex-selective abortion, that is the abortion of baby girls, was prevalent even though it remains against the law. Subsequent inspections of clinics in the United Kingdom found that the pre-signing of abortion forms by doctors without any contact with the women seeking to acquire an abortion, as well as the photocopying of doctors' signatures to pre-approve abortions was widespread, even though it's illegal. This bizarre Western death wish is propagated in one cultural message after another by media, film and educational materials, where we are perpetually told that humans are essentially infesting the planet, destroying Mother Nature and using up her resources so that ideas such as zero population growth, zero economic growth and carbon footprint reduction through any and all means, including abortion, have become political orthodoxy for many. Alongside this, our children in state schools are taught that sex is primarily for the purpose of recreation with anyone, not procreation. The killing of unborn babies is a mother's right, euthanizing the very sick and the elderly is compassionate, and governmental social engineering, not God, governs our lives. Into this contemporary chaos speaks the great I Am in Psalm 139 through David's marvelous prayer. here's what the psalmist says. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in, behind and before, and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together when as yet there were none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. O that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. This well known Psalm of David is a personal petition to know the infinite and ineffable God and to be led by Him, though surrounded by the wickedness of ungodly people. The Psalm celebrates God's intimate omniscience, His omnipotence, His omnicompetence in all human affairs, otherwise known as providence in Scripture, and His mercy and wonderful judgments. These truths about God serve as a comfort to the one who fears God, but are a terror to those who work evil. We have here presented to us the triune God of Scripture who knows all men, their aims, purposes and desires, a God from whom nothing is hidden and yet who enters into covenant relationship with his people using his personal name, I am. We see that God tests and searches us as creator and universal king. And in particular, we're confronted with his absolute sovereignty, providence, and predestination from womb to tomb. During the first five centuries of the church, this psalm was also understood as recounting the relationship between the members of the Godhead, as well as revealing elements of the gospel. For example, the sitting down and rising up in verse 2 is interpreted as the incarnation of the Son. In verses 3 through 6, some early commentators read a predictive knowledge of the incarnation. Verse 7 is thought of as referring to the omnipresence of the Holy Spirit who is with the Father and the Son. And verse 8 was often interpreted as representing Christ's death, resurrection and ascension. Now, though some of the early church's interpretations may seem forced, we certainly see Christ clearly in this psalm, in part because it reminds us of the virgin birth. Not only do we see Christ, but we see our very lives in the palm of God's hand from conception through gestation to the grave. In the first verse of Psalm 139, it literally reads, I am, you searched me and know me. This is actually worth reflecting on. The covenant God searches us and knows us better than we know ourselves. We see there in verses 2 through 4 the comprehensive extent and exhaustive character of that knowledge. This kind of intimate, all-encompassing knowledge is beyond our ability to fully comprehend. It's high, it's impregnable to our limited understanding, a wonder and mystery which humbles us and calls us to bow before it. David actually reminds us that there is nowhere we can flee from the all-seeing omniscience of God. It hems us in. There's no hiding place from the presence of God, neither in the heavens, nor in the grave itself can we escape the intimate knowledge and sovereignty of God. To the believer, this is a great comfort, joy, delight to the enemies of God. It's an intolerable terror and insult to their self-professed autonomy and anarchic freedom from God. Our inability to escape God at any point or in any place is dramatically set forth in verse 8, which literally reads, If I spread out my bed in the grave, behold, you are there. John Calvin puts it well. People cannot move a hair's breadth without his knowledge. This reality is powerful and important, but there is yet more to marvel at in this psalm. It is not that God simply knows all things. He is involved. As his covenant people, he lays his hand upon us. This is a hand of care and protection, leading and guiding of restraint and discipline, as well as judgment. To lay the hand upon someone here represents his full authority over all men. When I lay my hand upon my children, it is sometimes to protect or carry them, sometimes to restrain or discipline them, but it always exhibits my authority. This is why grabbing or restraining someone we have no right to control against their will can be construed as assault. It is an illegitimate exercise of authority. Often the biblical writers, like Job, call on God to remove his hand of discipline or judgment in the midst of his mysterious working. Yet how grateful we ought to be, like the psalmist, for the hand of God, even when it seems heavy upon us. If it were not for the forceful hand of God, whose authority and jurisdiction is total, Lot would have stayed in Sodom. Yet by grace, when he lingered, the angels grabbed him by the hand and led him out. If it were up to us, we would have cradled and nursed our sins and remained in rebellion against God with stony and defiant hearts. But he effectually calls us out of darkness into his marvellous light, raising us from spiritual death to life. Sometimes God's hand is also upon us as he cares for and comforts us. It is an immeasurable mercy to know the comforting hand of God in all things. His ever-present, all-knowing and all-powerful work is unrelenting in every area of life. This is the personal presence of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes even we as Christians want to run away from this all conditioning God, but David declares, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day for darkness is as light with you. Nowhere is this mysterious all conditioning providence more dramatically illustrated than in the marvel that is human conception and gestation. At the center of this great prayer of the psalmist is one of the most beautiful and important declarations in the psalms, revealing emphatically the sanctity of life. So remarkable are these things that David declares, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God, how vast is the sum of them. God's Total providence and sovereignty are not simply seen in his all-pervasive presence and knowledge of our activities. They are manifest in his personal creativity and ordination within our lives from conception to our last breath. Here then, we see how creation and predestination are involved in each other. The womb itself is God's studio poetically described as the depths of the earth, a place totally hidden. From conception through gestation, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Notably, this wonderful work of God is known to man even where they seek to deny this knowledge. The psalm thus shows emphatically that we all were personally predestined in God's righteous will and called into being for the purposes of God. All this manifests the grace and mercy of God. It is of particular interest to notice that the Hebrew word for mercy derives from the word womb, which helps us understand David's exalted praise, wonderful are your works. In verse 16 we have another critical statement in relation to our subject of the sanctity of human life. In the Hebrew, it literally reads, my embryo, Golmai, your eyes saw. This phrase means an incomplete vessel. The life is young and unfinished. The rest of the verse then goes on to beautifully relate the active creation of the human embryo in terms of God's predestination of the totality of life. The Sovereign Lord has ordained our days and our steps. In your book were written every one of them. The days formed for me when as yet there were none of them." As if to reinforce this marvelous truth, the word formed means the forming of a plan prior to its enactment. God then is not just counting the days in his secret work. He is forming the future before our hearts begin to beat giving meaning to every breath. Every person is thus fashioned in terms of God's holy purposes. Both the Old and New Testaments provide specific examples of this wonder. Consider Jeremiah 1, 5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. And St. Paul in Galatians 1, 15, 16. He who set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me. Given then that the womb is the master craftsman's studio for sculpting the future, it is only when we have considered this mercy of God and the providential care of God in the creation of the human embryo that we can begin to appreciate the evil of abortion. Given the biblical teaching, the wickedness of abortion should be obvious to Christians. Yet, according to some polls, religious school students are just as likely to have abortions as their secular counterparts. Allegedly, one in four evangelicals in America are conflicted on the question of abortion. The silence on this issue in the church is too often deafening, because to address the subject is seen as political, and politics is allegedly beyond the sphere of biblical faith. Nevertheless, the true church has long seen, in terms of biblical standards, the destruction of the human embryo as a form of murder. The grounds for this are seen clearly in the sixth commandment and in Exodus 21, 22 through 25. This is what the scripture says. Interestingly, modern pro-abortion intellectuals increasingly do not attempt to deny the charge of murder. Camille Paglia, a social commentator and pro-abortion writer, has stated, quote, I have always frankly admitted that abortion is murder, the extermination of the powerless by the powerful, which results in the annihilation of concrete individuals and not just clumps of insensate tissue. Such an admission on its own should be sufficient to dispel claims that abortion is in any way rooted in selfless or compassionate motivations. Paglia's statement is well in line with the biblical teaching on the life and personhood of the unborn. But let us consider further this passage in Exodus. This is a case law that sets out by a minimal case, an example, certain applications and implications. Firstly, the case here is of an accidental abortion. If the penalty for causing an abortion, not by premeditated violence, but by criminal negligence is so severe, it is obvious that abortion deliberately induced is strongly forbidden. We know that abortion was seen as murder because we see from the text that it carried the maximum penalty of death. Even if mother and child were not physically injured in the incident, the negligent man must be fined. In other words, God's law sets around a pregnant woman and her embryo a hedge of protection second to none. In scripture, even a mother bird with eggs or young is protected by the law, to prevent the exploitation of God's creation. If birds are to be protected, how much more mothers to be with their unborn child? The challenge we face today in applying God's law to the matter of abortion is not new. The early church had to confront the widespread reality of abortion in the Greco-Roman world. The Greek philosophers were often advocates of both abortion and infanticide whenever they were in the perceived interests of the pagan state. Plato's Republic makes this plain. He argues that the state is the ultimate order and functional god and can order abortion, infanticide and incest as it sees fit. Aristotle's position was similar in that he required abortions when state-permitted births were exceeded. In Roman law, abortion and infanticide were not essentially distinguished. Infants did not actually have legal status until the head of the family, the pater Familius, accepted the child into the family. Until that acceptance, an infant could be destroyed. By contrast, the early church quickly and consistently condemned abortion. For example, Tertullian wrote, to hinder a birth is merely a speedier man killing, nor does it matter whether you take away a life that is born or destroy one that is coming to birth. That is, a man that is going to be one. You have the fruit already in its seed." The early apostolic constitutions likewise call for vengeance upon those who destroy the unborn child. So serious was this to the church that because the Roman Empire did not see abortion as a crime in the way the Bible does, many elements of the church pronounced their own ecclesiastical sentence of penance for life to indicate the capital nature of the offence. The Council of Ankara in AD 314 noted this earlier practice and limited the restitution to ten years. By contrast, among the pagans, Tacitus, the Roman historian and senator, found it repugnant that the Jews would not kill babies. We can see from this how seriously the matter was taken In centuries past. In many countries today abortion and state control of births are not only legal but seen as a basic right. As biblical faith has declined in the West abortions have correspondingly increased. In Canada today abortion is free and permissible all the way up to full term. In 2008, which is the most recent statistics available as we record this, there were 85,195 registered abortions that our taxes paid for. US research shows that the reasons most often cited for an abortion are people claiming they are not ready for the responsibility or inadequate finances. Only 1% concern rape. Women are often pressured into abortions by their boyfriends, family, and peers, and a growing body of research reveals potentially serious physical, emotional, and mental ramifications following abortion. These include increased risk of premature deliveries of full-term children, with all the attendant risks of that, including death, endometriosis, and a six times greater risk of suicide, Other common motivations for having an abortion found in various studies include the preservation of beauty, the continued enjoyment of freedom and irresponsibility, a hatred of life, a hatred of men, and the alleged imperfection of a fetus. On the last point concerning the imperfection of a fetus, two American doctors writing back in the 1960s have rightly noted, no human being is perfect. Would the world, moreover, really be a better place after the destruction of millions of defective individuals? Has the world gained or lost from the services of the epileptic Michelangelo, of the deaf Edison, of the hunchback Steinmetz, of the Roosevelt's, both the asthmatic Theodore and the polio-paralyzed Franklin? It must be recognized that Liberalised abortion laws would logically be followed by pressures for legalised euthanasia. The attack on life is essentially the same. The truth of this statement has been confirmed recently with the advent of euthanasia in Canada. We're gonna go on to explore the subject of life in more detail in part two.